Once you start to break down how microservices are really deployed, you have even more layers, right? You have things like orchestration layers, service mesh layers. There are so many moving parts, so many supply chains that are just part of cloud applications today. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. In this episode, I speak to Marcella Malara, a research scientist in the security and privacy research group at Intel Labs, and Bruno Dominguez, a chief technology officer in the financial services industry practice and a Salsa project contributor about software supply chain security, a subject on everyone's minds today. I hope you enjoy, and please join us again for more important open source conversations. So first, thank you, Bruno and Marcella, for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, I think the people listening will appreciate your depth of knowledge and insights into supply chain security. And I'm excited about this conversation because it is really kind of at the forefront of open source security right now. Everybody's talking about it, and uh, I think we'll have we'll have some we'll we'll have some clarity by the end of our conversation. And I hope we'll have a little bit of fun too. So just to kind of get us started and lay some groundwork. I, I think when most people think of supply chains, they think of physical goods. They think of boats, trucks, trains, food supply chains. Especially since the beginning of the pandemic, we've all we've all uh, faced grocery grocery store order shortages, right? And, and, but what is a a software supply chain? Yeah, first of all, thank you for for inviting me onto this. Um, it's a really great opportunity to be able to talk about this. Um, your question was around what is really a software supply chain. And through the work that that I've been doing, both on the research side and on the open source side, I think it's actually a really hard question. Like in my experience, different people actually mean different things when they think about software supply chain. And I'm, I'm sure Bruno has even more to add to, to what I have sort of um, written down, which is really, you know, there's kind of sort of three aspects that I see um, there's the people involved in making software, there's the actual software components, and then there's also the sort of operational bits. Um, and so, right, you have people writing code, you have organizations giving you services, you have people who decide how your code is even built. That's kind of the people aspect, right? And the software component side includes anything really from the software dependencies that you might pull into your applications, your libraries, your packages, things like your Docker container, um, images, and it's it's all that sort of software stuff that goes into building your final product. And so the sort of final aspect is the operational part, like I said before, um, and that's the, the tools you might use to, to build and to test your code but also overall the series of actions you might take really to just get from source code to final product. So I sort of, I definitely realize this is a long answer, but I hope it shows that it's a very complex thing. Yeah, I, I appreciate that and acknowledging the complexity of it, because I think that's why this conversation can be overwhelming for people, especially when you're not super familiar with it or very immersed in it on a, on a regular basis. So anyway, Bruno, I don't know if you had a, a an answer to that initial question or yeah. if you want to add anything. So, uh, Catherine, thanks for having me. Uh, indeed, you're right. Most of people when talking about supply chain, thinking about 
goods, the physical things, you know, when you're talking about, for example, in, in the marketing, the supply chain, you're used to talking about atoms and electrons. Atoms, it's of course, it thinks that it's physical. Of course, you have uh, a, a flow that when you have to build something, for example, if you build a phone, you have, for example, the glass, the CPU and everything to build assembly. And of course, it's created in, in, a, in a very different way. And software, it's something that it's, of course, it's not new, but it's become more and more uh, critical nowadays. In the past, usually to create a software, what you, the only thing that you need is a computer and, of course, a compiler that you can write the code and compile the code and then it, you, you have the software. But, of course, when you have more complex systems, you have a lot of parts that have to be together and you start reusing most of the parts. And why it's become so more important nowadays? Because with the cloud distributed systems, you have been using APIs, you have been calls to different services. To build in a, a platform nowadays or even a software assistant, you have been using hundreds or if not thousands of uh, calls to different pieces of the code is that different services that run in a different parts of the internet. So how do you know that every piece that you are using it's trusted because if I am making a call, for example, an API, I'm sending some data and I would like to make sure that the data that I'm sending out to the services, it's trusted. So that's the reason that it's become a lot more complex nowadays and a lot more important because having an attack in, in the software supply chain, it's become like a, one of those major vectors. And you haven't seen this happening in the previous years that it's a the attack in the supply chain is growing, growing in a double digit. That's a uh, kind of a frightening statistic, isn't it? That's certainly why this conversation is so relevant right now and everybody's having it because there have been these very high profile attacks. So, so okay, now that we've, we've kind of defined what we're talking about here. Um, so and you kind of hinted at it, Bruno, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth. But how has the way software is made and its complexity evolved, brought the conversation about supply chain security sort of hurtling into the forefront as we're seeing right now. Well, first, the, 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 there are several aspects, of course, that come together. One of those is uh, the technology that's used to develop software nowadays. If you look at 20 years ago, most of those applications that was developed was compiled. It means you have the dependence in my computer, I compile and everything it's under my control. Nowadays, when you're talk, talking about, for example, containers and runtime application, and most of, by the way, most of the application that you have nowadays running worldwide, it's runtime. It means that I have my code and uh, if you have some dependencies, it's going to download the dependency most of the time um, in real time. So. That's the kind of things that become a lot more uh, loose that you can get productivity. But at the same time, there is a lot of pieces of dependency that you have no direct control. For example, if I build my application and I define all the dependencies that I have and I upload it to a cloud SaaS provider, I'm assuming that it's the cloud SaaS provider, they have uh, the infrastructure that I'm bringing those dependencies from a trusted source. That's not always true. That's something that has become, first, it's the technology that was used to, to write applications nowadays. The second one, it's something that you have been struggling in technology for many years, how we can effectively reuse code. So when you're talking about object-oriented application or programming, it's not something new, but now we have an steroids because if I need, for example, a function in my application, 
I just can consume through API to someone that it's providing me that capability. For example, if I would like to have my application uh, doing facial recognitions, I really don't need it to bother with you. I just have to call an API and uh, make these calls to this API. But I must be sure that it's, for example, the face and that I'm capturing the send that it's uh, I'm sending to a trusted party. That's something that it's also part of the software supply chain. So when, when you're talking about why it's now a lot more critical, it's one aspect. The first is the technology, the way that we deploy the technology. Of course, when you're looking for CI CD pipeline, you already speeded up this process. And sometimes you are just letting securities as, as a second thought sometimes, the way that we speed up the development. And as well, uh, the way that we are reusing code. And it, as much you are, of course, abstracting, using more and more technology, and of course, reusing code that was developed by someone else, we start in looking. I'm sure that it's, I would like to make sure that it's everything that I'm using, it's come from a trusted source as well. So that's the, the, the point. It's become a lot, lot more complex as well. We would like to have security in this pipeline, but as, as, as the same time, we don't want to slow down the pipeline. Okay, Marcella, did you want, did you have anything to add or? Yeah, if I can build off of what Bruno was saying exactly with this like speed of, of development, I think that has really exacerbated some of these these problems that that the, these trust problems and these security problems. But I also think that honestly, just it is so easy to access tools to build code. It is very easy to access uh, tools to distribute code. And even when you're trying to just, I mean, I'm thinking right now of how I write code myself. I often will Google and say, how do I do X, Y, Z? And there's a lot of just little code snippets on random forums, random blogs. And so there's just, it's very easy to find other people's code and build it as part of your application. And so I think that really this easy access to code that is often honestly pretty just crappy has sort of made the problem almost a bit worse because in some cases, because you're prioritizing your speed over your security, you don't actually check who wrote this or if it's following whatever security practices. But I also do think that a, a big change has just been the fact that we are even talking about software supply chain security as a topic um, because like a lot of these problems aren't new, like Bruno was saying. Um, and at the same time, because security hasn't been a priority, uh, this conversation just nobody was talking about it, even if there are some people who've been working on it for years. So, yeah. I can give an example about this. Yeah. Uh, I work with the financial institutions and many of those financial institutions, when they're looking for uh, how they develop code, for example, for investment banks, in an example, they tend to use, for example, it's very, very popular user, users of Python. And Python, it's the kind of language that you can create your own libraries. So you can define a library, I don't know, let's call, uh, let just make it, for example, Monte Carlo. I can upload that library to the repository. And then uh, when uh, inside the organization, you write the code and say, okay, you have that dependency and you can call some classes of this, uh, this library. 
but uh, of course, many of those banks, they have their own. They don't want to put this in the in a public repository. They have this all internally. However, if I take this code and execute outside the dependency, for example, that, that infrastructure, my DNS, it's going to call what it's public. Sometimes it's, I can get a library that was not intended for my code. Or sometimes it was intentionally tampering. So that, of course, can inject, for example, uh, a bad behavior in my application. So it, that's the kind of facility that you have that it's so easy to develop code, to distribute the code. Sometimes you have to look at not only the code itself, but the infrastructure that you execute. That's the reason that it's so important because sometimes the application was designed assuming that infrastructure is secure, but not always you are going to execute in that environment. And that's when bad things happen. And then it's where, for example, have good practices in software supply chain. When you build the application, you make sure that you have the provenance of every piece of the software that you are putting together is so important. Maybe your design principles that you have today, it's not true in a year, uh, in a year from now. Yeah. Uh, you know, something that Marcella said earlier made me think about the importance of being a smart consumer of open source software. Open source is great. We're all, again, we're standing on the shoulders of giants at all times. You know, there's so much out there that works and is brilliant and it's free and open and you just pull it into your project, right? And that is so, it's so tempting to just sort of, well, click a button and it's automatic and, you know, and maybe I, maybe I don't have to carefully review it or, or care, you know, care for it and feed it or, or, you know, all of those things. And I think that's, that is an interesting conversation to be had around open source. The inherent benefit of open source is tremendous, but, you know, you can't, I think, forget to, again, be a responsible consumer. And that's a good message, I think, that you shared. So, again, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of, uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, Bruno, there have been several very high-profile security incidents that have intensified interest in this whole conversation. Have the risks actually changed, or did the attackers get smarter, or organizations just more transparent about reporting? How has the supply chain conversation evolved in the last several years as a result of these breaches? I think that it's it, it, all all that the, all the elements that you mentioned. It's of course it have been exacerbated as well. Uh, one thing that you haven't seen it's uh, the first with everything as a self that is a lot of reusability of the code, and then of course uh, we will start to have a concentration and some functions or some codes or some libraries, and then if you attack, for example that specific library, that specific services, that API, you can affect a lot of customers as well, a lot of users. So the one, it's the price. It's of course, it's higher when you're looking for the, the, the uh, from the perspective of, of attacker as well. The second one, it's that uh, uh, in my opinion, software supply chain, it's, uh, it's a problem screening for a solution because it's not something that you can just put in a software or a tool and uh, it's solved. No, you have to put everything in place. People training, uh, developers, the good practice to review the code and uh, have the tools that you can track it back, who developed that code that was checking in every point. And then you can put the framework together. So it's technology process and people. That's the reason that it's so hard. And of course, everything that slow down the, de the development, everything that you put some security that it's not immediate uh, business value, people are starting to be more resistant to adopt until you have a problem. 
that's when people start looking back. Oh, now we have to develop this. So it's it's a mix of a culture. It's a mix of a, the highest price, and as well the technology that you have been using that make this kind of attack easier than it was uh, ten years ago, for example. Yeah, and I think a lot of the actual core issues that we're finding um, aren't sort of these new unknown technological problems. We actually have a lot of technology to address a lot of the risks that are being exploited. And it's just because, um, like Bruno was saying, the cost of having those issues be exploited is so much higher now that organizations, government agencies are starting to pay a lot more attention than before. So there are honestly several of these incidents that have been very high profile in the last few years have gone back to things like poor key management or, I mean, for example, in the IoT space, people talk a lot about really bad passwords and all these kinds of things that for years, security experts in industry, academia, open source have been saying, you know, these are sort of basic security practices that we should be following. And because the cost of those not being followed was so low before, or at least comparatively, right? People just like didn't care enough to implement some of those things. And so um, it, it's exactly what Bruno was saying of like, there isn't a single solution that will solve software supply chain security. It's, it's really just a whole bunch of different issues, some of which are actually well known and people just never cared to focus on them before. Most modern software has a whole lot of open source code in it. And yet open source frequently gets kind of singled out as a security risk. I keep saying, quote unquote, the problem with open source or a heightened scrutiny from government entities as well. So for example, you know, the Securing Open Source Software Act. So the, the term open source comes up a lot. But shouldn't we just say software in general can be vulnerable? Why, why the distinction and heightened awareness of open source as a unique source of vulnerability. Well, indeed you are right. Both software, uh, closed, I mean, proprietary and of course open source, they have vulnerability. I think that it's the, the point with the open source and that's the reason many regulated industries, they still have resistance to adopt open software because they would like to make sure that it's uh, have a, a good governance behind those softwares. That is a good practice. So it's not uncommon, for example, in financial institutions, they start looking first for the government of some of the software they would like to adopt before they really look into the software itself. Because security, most of those regulated industry comes first. So uh, uh, that's the reason that it's, uh, when you're talking about open source, usually they have this open uh, development community as well. So everybody can uh, write a piece of code and submit, and they have the committers that is going to review the code and accept or not to be integrated in the part of the the, the masterpiece of the code, you know? So, uh, and then not all open source organization, they have good governance. That's where they looking as a good opportunity. It's not because it's open or not. It's the government's how to write the code and maintain the code and how you deal, of course, when you have, for example, a vulnerability that you have to fix that that software quickly. So mm -hmm. 
Closed soft, of course, or proprietary soft, they have that problem, but it's uh, you most of those code, it's behind a, a certain SLA agreement. If I buy, for example, software, I am I have an agreement that I expected, for example, if that is a vulnerability, the company is going to notify me, it's going to provide the fix in X amount of time. It's just how do you deal with the uh, the organization? It's not it's not if it's open or not. Yeah. And I mean, it's also probably useful to note a maintainer can can have a fix out there the next day. But if you don't, yeah. if you don't pick that fix up and then, uh, you know, update your own use of it, yep. it's not necessarily going to help you. But go ahead, Marcella, you look like you have something. Yeah. So I think um, some, of the, again, to sort of just build off of what Bruno was saying about um, the governance pieces, it's also... I, I do think it comes back a bit to the sort of easy access to putting your code out as open source, where you can set up a free GitHub account and just upload however many public repositories um, you want. And it's free. So it's just very low cost to get your code out there. And because so many people share code, even not uh, through things like GitHub. Um, yeah, I think that's that's mostly why there it is difficult to govern and also there's just so much of it that yeah it yeah it, it's difficult to figure out who did what and even when you do have a better governed organization if you have a bunch of random contributors you know how do you make sure that this code is being reviewed properly and all that um yeah just tracing sure, yeah, yeah. the people right just becomes yeah, it's an approaching zero barrier to entry, basically, <laughs> almost. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a good example that I can give to you about this, for example, it's uh, that it's an organization that called Finals.org that was mm -hmm. funded for, by most of financial institutions in, uh, in Europe and United States, most of them. And the idea is that, uh, for example, common open source code that was used by financial institutions they can hand out for this organization. And this organization is going to handle or to have the governance over that code in a way that financial institutions, they believe it should be. For example, looking first for the security, have a good governance, they have a good transparency. So as, as I mentioned, every piece of code that is of interest of this financial institution, they put in a, a common organization to handle, to make sure that it's there following the governance. That's the reason that it's many regulated industries. We have a lot of concern when taking something on the GitHub as Marcella put on because they do not know how to maintain what it's the, the life cycle of this application, if it, you can trust the developer or not. So have an organization that have this governance and it's funded by financial institutions, help them to adopt in a way that it's they don't have to care so much about the, the source of the application or the code. Right. Yeah. That kind of that level of uh, having a respected, trusted organization to bless mm -hmm. the the projects under it is, is is valuable. So here's a taking a slightly different turn. Here has the rise of microservice architecture and the in the evolution of containers contributed to supply chain concerns. Is it more moving parts equals more risk? Yeah. Absolutely. I. Uh, I, I think that it's for for several reasons. One from the how you build it, the microservice itself. If you, for example, if you build a container, you write in a piece of uh, I mean, in a text what it's the, the dependencies 
And uh, when you send it to the container manager, it's going to bring those dependencies. You have no control about the infrastructure where they bring those dependencies. So it's the first vector of attack. It's how the container itself is built. And then the second one, it's from the application logic perspective, because the idea of the Microsoft that you have a call from one Ceph to another services, and uh, the idea is we have this abstraction. I don't care what it's running on the other side. I just would like to know what is the format that I have to send the request and how the data it's come back so I can process each pieces of the, the application. So uh, this kind of abstraction led, of course, the application a lot less aware who they're calling and what is the response that you're getting. And of course, you can eventually, for example, put in a container or for example, microservices that was built uh, for someone that I have no trust. And then when you're looking for the big scheme, I mean, the whole application, it's you cannot just have a one piece of the application trust another piece of the application. Uh, I, I mean, the, the Microsoft architecture was not built with the software supply chain in mind. It's something that has been added with the last couple of years, so that it's we can have a Microsoft architecture in a way that you can attach every piece there. It's trust, but was not by design at the at, at the principle. Yeah, and I think it's really. I mean, once you start to break down how microservices are really deployed, you have even more layers, right? You have things like orchestration layers, service mesh layers. Those are each maybe running all on the sort of cloud service provider infrastructure, but the cloud service provider did not build that code themselves. They are sort of in a way outsourcing who built that. And so now you have extra supply chains, right? Um, and then microservices, because they're supposed to be very responsive and always available in that kind of sort of operational aspect again, um, you might have multiple versions of the same microservice running at the same time to respond to to sort of parallelize or optimize how the application is operating. Um, and so sometimes you need to do, you have to think about things like, oh, this machine went down, I need to sort of migrate this particular instance somewhere else. And like you said, there are so many moving parts that there's so many layers, so many supply chains that are just part of cloud applications today. Okay, so now that we've la laid all that out there, <laughs> um, so what are, what are some su supply chain best practices that every developer should know? Where, where are the key vulnerable links to address first? Well, I think that it, did, it didn't change over the time, but I think that the weakest link is still are the developers and the reviewer. <laughs> That's where everything <laughs> starts, yeah. <laughs> that is the weakest link. If you have good practices on there, the reviewer have good practices as well. And uh, everything else, it's a consequence. You just sign in the code, you have provenance, and you put in a, a chain that you can later check. I know that it's a lot of uncertainty about how you check this along the chain, that it's what, for example, where it's also coming. It's uh, how you have a best practice, a framework that you can trace it back and have best practices and how to you, uh, track the application or the trust of the application. Yeah, I, I think I have to totally agree. It comes down to the people involved and making sure that uh, they have the right incentives, they have the right tools to secure their supply chain. So one problem that is just very common is, and I think this is just kind of general to 
security overall, but for especially things like development security, now you have extra processes maybe because you have to go through extra steps of review or you have to sort of configure different accounts or something based on the types of operations or something that you're doing. And so suddenly people are like, oh, well, that's going to take me too much time. That's sort of the, the barrier to security. They start wondering if it's really worth the trouble. And so I think just a, a very hard problem is really just how do we find the right incentives, like I said, and just the right messaging and communication around even setting up some of these basic tools and, and practices. Let, let, let me add a, one thing. Maybe I'm going to disclose my, my age now. <laughs> Uh, 20 years ago, I remember this, it was 23. I was working at Microsoft at that time and Microsoft created an initiative that was called Trustworth Computing. And uh, one thing it was, Microsoft would like to make uh, more secure code. And one thing they changed in development cycle, it was shift to reviewers and developers. Because usually when you would like to be really fast on development, you take your best developers to write the code and one that probably is not the best developers to review the code. But what happened in it's the reviewer, it's not able to review the code with a better developer. It's like, for example, it's like uh, someone gave me the Einstein physical exam to review. I say, come on, here's Einstein. I'm not <laughs> going, I'm not able to do that. So what they did, they shifted. So the most experienced developers, they tend to review the code because they can spend more time looking for the problems of course, you are slow down the, the, the CICD pipeline when you're looking for modern uh, methodology, but you are going to, sure, write better code, more secure code. I'm going to pivot just a little bit and, and let's talk about who y'all are. Marcella, in particular, this is directed at you. As a research scientist, you must view software supply chain security through a particular lens. So I'm curious, how did you arrive at this point in your career and what led you to study software supply chains? I, I appreciate that question. Because um, I think when I saw this question, I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, let me think about what I've worked on and how, how I actually got here. Um, and also maybe revealing my age, um, I started grad school about 10 years ago. And so looking back, I think um, my research has and still focuses on security and distributed systems very broadly. But looking back at the work that I did and started in grad school, even I kind of sort of always worked on supply chain related problems, whether that was on um, topics like cryptographic key management and making that more easy to use, providing new tools or systems for end users to be able to manage their, their keys more easily. That's actually still a very hard problem. Um, or things like improving operating systems to protect against like untrusted code that you might pull into your application. Um, there's at least some ways you can spin all of those problems to be supply chain related. Um, but I didn't really start working on actual software supply chain, what people might sort of consider more directly related until I want to say like three years ago um, when I joined Intel and my team sort of had this question one day of, well, how do we know that this code that we're receiving from random places and loading into our system 
isn't going to do bad things. And that is like exactly the software supply chain question ultimately, right? Is how do we trust this code? And so we initially sort of thought, oh, we just need to build a tool that gives us extra information. So we start moving into this space of, of transparency um, and we realize very quickly the question, how do we know if this code is trustworthy is actually incredibly complex itself because you can ask so many questions and you have so many different potential requirements or, or trust policies, right? And so that, that's kind of how we got here. It started as the sort of single question and then realizing, oh, this is actually very complex. E each question itself sort of leads to new rabbit holes and new paths. And I would say that, I mean, to your point about sort of this research perspective, maybe that's, that's ultimately where research is, is the sort of, oh, we found a problem and we dug a bit deeper and we found like 10 or however many more problems. And then sort of trying to figure out which are the more important ones, which ones, you know, are we better equipped to, to handle and that kind of, that kind of stuff. So um, software supply chain has so many moving parts, like we've been discussing this whole time, that it just feels like a very open field, especially once you start sort of expanding what you might consider software supply chain to be um, going beyond things like build or, or compilation. There, there's just, it's a very big open space. I'm just going to leave it at that for now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of our listeners and and you know everybody who works even peripheral to this field, you know, we we're we're in our little we're in our pockets. We're focusing on our own little problems, right? Just discrete units of of code or or whatever it is that we're doing. And I think it's interesting to see your perspective as somebody who has the opportunity, let's say, to dive down and get really deep into these problems. And I think that's hugely beneficial and a little bit inspirational, I suspect, to some people listening. So. And yeah. I, I do want to go actually a little bit more in depth about this idea of trust and and, ver and identity verification. But first, I want to ask Bruno a couple questions about where he where he, how how he came to be here here today. So, Bruno, I know that you're you're heavily involved in the Salsa project, mm -hmm. and I'm curious one to know more about your specific involvement, what you can tell people about that, but also kind of what drew you to it. How did you end up being a Salsa contributor? To get to that point, let me give a, a sense of what I've been, been doing before that. So I have been working with financial institutions for the last 20 plus years. It's a, it's a financial institutions a regulated industry. And as you can imagine, they are well known to be very conservative. And of course, uh, people put money on the banks because of a trust of the bank. So at the end of the day, financial institutions, they are selling trust as image, right? And then uh, in my experience here, even being a conservative industry, they have this paradox of being like um, the industry that spend 20% of the everything that the whole world is spending in IT. So if you take, for example, uh, the IT market in the world is $3 trillion, 700-ish billions, it comes from financial institutions. So how can be a very conservative industry spend so much money and... Uh, NIT. So what I realized dealing with so many projects in financial institutions, it was that it's um, to innovate in that industry, uh, everything must be trusted, you know. So I haven't seen many projects that didn't uh, take off because there is uh, some element 
that uh, they cannot adopt. As for example, as you mentioned, for example, they are very conservative to use an open source, open source, because if you have no governance or something else. So, uh, one thing that I, I start in having a vision, uh, looking, having conversation with uh, financial institutions as well regulators, it was, I really believe that uh, if you can unlock this trust hurdle, I mean, with the code that they can use we can have more innovation in financial institutions and in financial market in general. It means if they don't have to looking at, for example, uh, to the whole friction that they have to adopt, for example, a piece of code, they can innovate faster. And then it won, for example, uh, uh, Google, they decided to uh, put in the salsa code, or at least the salsa framework as a public at that time, I, that's what I, I saw the opportunity, how we can bring the financial service vision to that organization. So that's when I joined the uh, South organization as a steering member of the committee. And, when, and since then, I have been deeply involved in, in the software supply chain. So, so now that we know how you got here and, 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 and your involvement, um, could you tell us a little bit about how the Salsa framework addresses supply chain concerns? What is Salsa? Yeah, salsa. You, you have to think salsa as a, as a framework. They, uh, the way that it describes it, they have uh, maturity levels or ways that to. Let, let me step back. They are a framework. How do you implement security supply chain? So they have four levels. Uh, the first level is more basic. Uh, so you have a, just a few kind of uh, a threats that you can address with salsa level one. And they can imagine, salsa level two, you have more elements, more control that you have to put in the software development and of course to deployment, but you have more secure. So until you have the level one that it's like a minimum or basic until the level four, that's what uh, you have a, a huge control about the software you are developing the, and the way that you are putting uh, in, in production environment. And then uh, each one you have the cost. So. It's a, it's a framework that, in my opinion, help, for example, if I'm, a, for example, in a company developing software, I can look for the tracks that I have, looking for a common language that it's also the framework they bring as well tools that help me to figure out what is the trade-off that I would like to pay, uh, what is the security that I'm going to implement and uh, at, at cost, or if the security that is really important to me, even uh, uh, of course, and have to slow down or put in, for example, much harder in the development of the software. That's kind of a framework that Salsa brings, of course, with everything that comes together, tools, best practices, and the requirements so that you can put in practice so you can have uh, this provenance showing up in the supply chain. So a couple of ideas that we've kind of hinted at or expressed earlier on are trust, verification, identity. Addressing security throughout the software development lifecycle relies heavily on trust. How do things like code signing, attestation, and identity verification build that trust? Well, that's a, I, I don't want to mislead the, this conversation about the trust in this sense, because uh, even have identity, even you have a signing code, and you ever think it doesn't guarantee that the quality of mm -hmm. the code is good. It's just that you can trace it back and that the developer and review can have accountability. So that's something that uh, 
most of cases, uh, that's something that you do not have today. I mean, most of those software developments, especially when you have a huge organization with thousands of developers, sometimes it's really hard to trace it down. Who developed this piece of code? And uh, Salsa can help you to trace it back and to bring accountability to developers and reviewers. So it's like a, if you if you have to sign up for something, this is a code that I wrote down. And if there is a problem down the line, they can trace back to me. It's like, a, well, I have more responsibility as a developer. I should put more effort. So, but does not guarantee that it's not right. a, a problem with the code. The code was not uh, poorly built or have any vulnerability. It's just accountability in the, in the development process. Right. So it's like a piece of art. You could track down its provenance and know every person who's ever touched it or owned it back to, you know, the year 1250. But if it was never a good piece of art to begin with, yeah, that exactly. doesn't get you very far. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So here's, here's the, the, the obligatory, almost final question. Is there anything you wanted to mention, but we didn't get a chance to talk about? I think just... Based on both internal and external conversations um, with developers and with people who care about securing the, the software supply chain, I think we just need to keep having these types of conversations about what developers need, what they don't need, how we can make the software development lifecycle, um, how, how we can adapt it to, to adding these sort of security processes or how we can sort of have the least impact while also maximizing the security. Those, those types of questions, I think, and, and conversations are really important. And sometimes I get the sense that there's a disconnect still between most of the developers who might actually be using some of these security tools and the people making and building and talking about these security tools. So if I was to leave with something. I think it'd be, we need to communicate more and maybe even better. I like it. I'm quite, uh, I'm quite happy to be having this conversation. And, and to, again, to even be, to be putting this out on, on behalf of Intel, I think is, is important because, uh, because this is an important conversation to us. It's an important conversation to the entire open source community. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we, we can keep it going. Bruno, did you have anything? Well, um, Work with uh, uh, in regulated industry, I can tell you, this is a problem that it's a scream for a solution for sure. And uh, But what I see is that moving forward, you are going to see a lot more fragmentation in solutions out there. You're a lot see a lot of more tools that it have a very different ways to approach the problem. Uh, I'm seeing that it's uh, your problem seeing a lot more confusion about how to tackle that problem before we have a very clear way to have built a software supply chain, for example. Uh, we haven't seen uh, many organizations that is struggling to implement a software supply chain, What I mean, good practice. And they say, wow, why should I use a Salsa if you already have S-Bone? S-Bone is software bill of material. Oh, but it's not competing. Oh, no, in each way. So. That's the reason that I think that it's we needed to be more vocal, be more uh, have more education that that space because that it's not one single source, and of course many companies they are going to deploy their own way to develop their solution, and not all the time they are going to to talk with each other, 
And the software development nowadays is really a complex environment. For example, many organizations that consume software, they hire system integrators to develop that software. And they would like to test, oh, you develop it using the best practice. So which best practice do you use? So you are going to see a variety of tools and the practices and the ways to control because there is no standard nowadays. So that's the reason that I'm going to see a lot more complication in the future before we have the clear path. Great. And this is the, the last one. And that's where, where would you recommend people listening go for more information about supply chain security and to learn? That's a really good question because I think it does come back to your question about um, where to find information. Because again, I think precisely because of what Bruno was saying about all this fragmentation and all mm -hmm. of these sort of different parallel efforts, there are actually a lot of sources. Yeah. Um, I think OpenSSF is a very uh, good, like they have really just made it their goal, mission, to, mm -hmm. to improve software development, the software supply chain. So honestly, I mean, if I were to point someone, I would say go to the OpenSSF website. Um, but there are also other efforts um, like the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. Um, I also am involved a little bit in some projects there. And there's a whole separate software supply chain working group there as well. So those are two sort of good sources that I would list, but there's probably thousands more. Yeah. But it's nice to, it's nice to have, you know, a trusted resource like the OpenSSF. I think no. it's pretty well universally respected and it's a great source of information. Bruno, did you have anything else or? Uh, OpenSSF and sauce.dev. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I think this has been fantastic. I think anyone listening probably has gotten a ton out of this. I have. This is an evolving conversation and I'm really happy to have it with you too and with the people listening. We'll, we'll, we'll continue it in the future. Super Thank good. you for having me. <laughs> this has been really fun. <laughs>